Father God, thank you for this time that we can gather together as a church family, Lord. Family because you are our Father and you have, through your Son, purchased us at great price. So we thank you for the privilege and the joy and, and the comfort of gathering together before your word to sing praises to you and to minister to one another through your spirit, to humble ourselves before the Bible as we seek to hear from you, to obey you and to worship you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless this time and that our hearts would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. It's good to be with all of you and to be back here with you. I, well, I came back a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I was just kind of hanging around, still doing my uh, normal attender thing for a little bit. But I was on sabbatical. So for those of you who don't know, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And I just came back from a uh, three-month sabbatical. I wanted to thank uh, the church again and all of you for allowing me and my family to have that time. I spent most of the time reading um, and spending time with the family and uh, fishing quite a bit. Um, and then I also was able to visit a lot of churches. And that was really an interesting experience. I visited all sorts of churches. I was able to uh, just come in after worship started, sit in the back, right? Uh, don't talk to anyone and disappear, right? Uh, when everything was over. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, it was really cool to just see uh, what it was. And to, for kind of the first time in uh, over a decade, really, for me to just be able to attend and to worship and to hear the preaching. And as I was preparing this week uh, to come back, I, I was really thankful for all of you. And it's really a joy to be back here with you and to see your familiar faces. And I was also thinking as I was preparing to preach that it's been a while and I probably shouldn't have been so critical in my own head of all these other preachers because uh, I'm back in the saddle and you all are going to have to listen to me. So 1 Samuel 13, that's where we're at. If you could turn your Bibles there, 1 Samuel 13. Uh, we are going through the book of Samuel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today we are in the 13th chapter, beginning of Saul's reign. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. 
And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. And on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it seemed to make sense to be disobedient? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you you thought of all the options I have before me, the one that seems best is to do what I know I shouldn't? I had a friend who found himself in this situation a while ago. We were meeting up for a while, just grabbing coffee week in and week out to talk about life and and work and all that. And one day he confided in me that he was feeling guilt about his employer relationship, that he was being dishonest with his employer and he was getting credit for more hours than he had really been working. And what he felt he needed to do was to clear things up, to stop getting paid for that, uh, to start being more honest and really to to fess up to what had been happening for the last few months. But as he shared with me, and and he knew kind of what he ought to do, he was worried because he needed that money to pay for his rent. He, He didn't have a lot. He needed the money to pay for his hopefully upcoming school, and he didn't have any other options on the table for a job. In fact, from his point of view, he had no options. And I remember as we were praying and we were talking through this situation, I couldn't help but think myself that in this case, maybe it would make sense to hold off on telling the truth. Maybe it would make sense to just wait until this whole thing passed over so he could get through this season that was so hard to not set things right, to just be dishonest a little bit longer. And I'm guessing, if we're honest... Many of us have found ourselves in a similar situation before. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. But it just makes more sense on a human level to not do what we know we should because of how bad it might turn out for us. And if you've ever been in a situation like that before, then this passage 
is for you. And, and this passage uh, is about a situation like that. What does the Bible say that we're supposed to do in situations where it seems good to us, it seems okay, it seems justifiable even to disobey God? That's the question that the beginning of Saul's reign answers for us. So we're going to take a look at this whole chapter in three parts, which explain for us the situation, the decision, and finally the evaluation of Saul, Israel's first king, to learn from his example about what to do when disobedience seems to make sense. So first we're going to look at the situation of Saul's kingship, starting in verses 1 through 8. In the first eight verses, it kind of sets up for us what was happening as Saul became the official king of Israel. Now, we need to kind of get our bearings. We need to set ourselves in the story a little bit because this is not what we're used to. We don't understand really how this whole kingship would work, um, especially as it worked in ancient Israel. Um, just to get our bearings in the story, Israel has wanted a king for a while. And the reason they wanted a king is not because they wanted to pay taxes and not because they wanted a palace, nothing like that. They wanted a king because they were in this constant battle with the people who were in the land with them. Right, there are these other tribes, uh, the Ammonites, the, the Philistines that we're going to see in a moment, and they would constantly have these wars. And you have to remember that it's not like America. Okay, back then, it was basically that every city was for itself. Every city had their own defense. Some cities had walls. They would take care of maybe neighboring villages, but everyone was kind of separated and scattered. And so there were these people who were fight the Israelites every once in a while and defeat them. And we saw that all through Judges. And they wanted a king to fight their battles to free them from this endless cycle of war. And in some senses, unfortunately, it's not too different from what's still happening in the promised land today. Saul is anointed king. And after his anointing, Saul has this victory over the Ammonites. He defeats this one army at this one city of Israel, and he is successful. And now when Saul was first anointed, some people didn't want him as a king. They thought, we don't like this guy that much. We're not sure about him. But after he won that battle, everyone got on board. Everyone said, we want this man to be our king. He was, if you recall, the tallest in Israel. He was um, handsome. He was probably dark. I don't know. That's just how it happens, right? Tall, dark, and handsome Saul. He was everything they could have wanted. He was a conqueror. He defeated their enemies. And now he is fully, functionally, the king. And in 1 Samuel 13, what we see in the first verse is this pattern that you'll see from the rest of this book and into First and Second Kings that tells you it's going to talk about the highlights and the lowlights of Saul's reign. Okay, that's what the pattern is in the first verse of First Samuel 13. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. That's what it literally says. Now, it's interesting. If you have your Bibles um, with you, and I hope you do, if you look at that verse and you have different versions, you may notice that your version doesn't say the same thing as another person's version. Some say that he was 30 years old when he started to reign, and he reigned for 42 years. Some say that he lived a year, and then he reigned for two years after that. Um, and in my older ESV, it actually has three dots. It says Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, dot, dot two years over Israel. So we need to at least mention this, okay, this is not like a crazy important part of the, the lesson today, but the reason for that is that in the original manuscripts, which were without error, uh, there were numbers, presumably, that told us how old he was when he started to reign and how long he reigned forever. But by the time uh, we got the manuscripts, those numbers had gone missing. Okay, that's just a simple explanation. We don't know exactly what those numbers were, so people have tried to fill in the blanks. 
Um, and this isn't to, to cut at your um, confidence in Scripture. Uh, there are some missing like numbers, as in this case, but as you can tell, it doesn't affect our theology, it doesn't affect our understanding of the gospel, it doesn't affect our understanding of God, but just being realistic that in the process of copying this over millennia, they lost these two numbers. So we don't know how old Saul was when he started to reign. We don't know exactly how long he reigned, but the pattern is the pattern we see all throughout this book, that it's going to explain to us the reign of Saul, the highlights and the lowlights. And the first highlight is that Saul enlisted an army, just like Samuel said he would. He got people and he turned them into soldiers. Now, a lot of you here have been in the armed forces. You kind of know what it is to, to be in reserve or to be active duty. In Israel's day, and we have to remember this, they came out of Egypt, and in Egypt they were slaves. And they came into the promised land, and, and they did win a lot of battles, but they weren't soldiers. They weren't professional soldiers by any means. The Israelites were not people who knew how to fight. This wasn't their, their normal course of action. They, they were mostly farmers. That's what they did. They farmed. And so Saul, for the first time in Israel's history, creates a standing army. He, he gets 3,000 of the best men, and he turns them into a full-time fighting force supplied by the people, led by the king and his son. This was an important development to the nation. It was important to the people of Israel. And what else does Saul do in his reign? Well, he starts a war with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. He starts a war with them to do what the Israelites wanted him to do, to fight their battles for him. Starting in verse 3, the text narrows in on the particular moment that this war begins. Saul's son Jonathan takes one-third of the army, a thousand men, and he strikes a garrison that's in Geba, which is in the territory of Benjamin, uh, a city that had been controlled by the Philistines. He strikes it, and he wins. In 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a poem that kind of was immortalized in history. And, and I read the poem, and a lot of it's kind of hard to understand, but there's one line that is super famous. And this is how it starts. He says, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. It's a great image and a great line. It was commemorating the battle of Concord that started the Revolutionary War. And in a sense... As Saul's son Jonathan strikes the garrison at Geba, it was a shot heard around Israel for them. It marked the beginning of this, this long-standing conflict that would, that would really characterize all Saul's reign. And the text says that it was followed by a quick declaration to all Israel that they had won the battle, that they had struck the first blow. But things get messier. And this is where we need to kind of get with this whole explanation of the situation. Things get messier than anyone would have hoped messier than Saul would have hoped, because verse 4 tells us that the people had hurt the Philistines, but they had also made them mad. They had become a stench to them. It had made them detestable in their sight. And what happens is that Saul calls back the army of Israel to join him at Gilgal because the Philistines are not going down without a fight. This time, they're not just going to roll over and play dead. They're actually going to pay back the Israelites for what had happened. The last time Israel was at Gilgal, they were rejoicing and singing and sacrificing. And they were pumped 
because they had just defeated the Ammonites. This time when they come, what's in the air is fear and maybe anger and disappointment. This time, it's something else. Because the enemy isn't going down without a fight. The people, all of a sudden, aren't so full of joy and faith. Look at verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, the east of Bethaven. This wasn't the response they were hoping for. The Philistines create this huge professional army, chariots and horsemen and men without number. They take over Saul's base, Michmash, which was his command post originally. They take it over and they prepare to really crush the Israelites. And in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble and the people were hard-pressed, and in this chapter when it talks about the men of Israel and the people, it's talking about the army. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about every single person. It's talking about the army, those reserves that Saul called up. When they saw they were in trouble, they hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and tombs and cisterns. They're literally hiding underground. Some of them desert over the Jordan. It's not a great situation. It's intimidating to them. And the way they respond and the way Saul responds reveals something to us. Now, before we go any further, I think we ought to see some parallels in our lives. It's easy for us to be kind of too big for our bridges, so to speak, when things are going well, spiritually speaking. Easy to praise God and be confident in him when we just got married or we just recently learned about Calvinism or we just recently became this or that. But when life gets hard, when things legitimately are more than you think you can bear. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? It wasn't my life. I think the times when, when I thought so highly of myself and thought so, so proudly about my accomplishments was when things were going well. But when things weren't going the way I planned, when it was a lot harder to sing the praises of God. This wasn't a walk in the park for King Saul. This would be hard for any of us. And as is often the case in our lives and in this situation, in this trial, in this hard circumstance, that's the real test of who Saul is before God. It's the fire that reveals what he is made of. And this revealing happens in verses 8 through 12, where we see the decision, Saul's fateful decision. Now, in light of everything I've said, um, there are a lot of decisions Paul to me. You'd be right to think there are tons of decisions as the king, as the commander, in the midst of preparing for this battle that he would have to make. He spends a week with the weight of the knowledge that he poked this bear, and it turns out his army is really afraid of this bear, so they're, they're hitting the hills. Now, I don't know what it would be like to have the lives of soldiers in my hands, but despite the long military setup of this passage, the author now focuses not on a military decision, and not on a logistical decision, but on a seemingly small act, a seemingly small thing that Saul must decide. We need to look at where the text looks. It zeroes in on the decision Saul must make of whether or not he's going to wait for Samuel the prophet or not. That's it. Not, not how he's going to set up the defense. It's not whether or not he's going to strike first or, or anything, but whether or not he's going to wait 
for Samuel the prophet to come and sacrifice and instruct him according to the Lord. Look at verse 8. He waited. Okay, he did wait. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. The army is going away more and more. And back in 1 Samuel 10, we kind of get the reasoning for this command. Samuel had instructed Saul way back when he first became anointed that every time he went to Gilgal, not just one time, but every time he went to Gilgal to seek the Lord's leading, he was to wait for Samuel to get there, to offer a burnt offering and a peace offering, and then to instruct him according to the word of God. That's the pattern that Samuel gave him. So if you imagine, the reason for that is simple because Samuel didn't live at Gilgal. So when Saul went to Gilgal to receive instruction, Samuel had to get on his donkey and get across Israel to get there. So wait seven days, wait for me, I will offer the sacrifice, and then I will instruct you, Samuel says, as to what the Lord wants you to do. But this time, as they're at Gilgal, all this bad stuff already is happening, Samuel doesn't show up. Seven days pass, he presumably sent a message to Samuel, but he hasn't arrived in the appointed time, the text says. And so Saul has a choice to make. And in verse 9, he makes the choice, the fateful choice, the wrong choice. He looks around, he sees the army deserting, and he says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And I love this next part. It just has like echoes of Gandalf showing up for me. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. The smell of burning wood is still in the air when Samuel, the man of God, arrives. And the word in Hebrew for behold is the word that means surprise, like busted. You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. But get this, we might think that Saul has a lot of shame, right? That's what would happen to me. You know, when you get caught uh, by someone walking in when you were doing what you weren't supposed to do, or you get caught in a bold-faced lie, or bald-faced lie, I don't know what the word is. You feel this shame, but it seems actually from the text that Saul doesn't feel any shame. Now, this is really interesting. We have to understand why would this be the case. Saul doesn't have any shame. Saul goes out to meet Samuel, and the text says he also goes out to greet him. And that word for greet in Hebrew is the word bless. Saul goes out and he blesses Samuel. He thinks that everything's good. He did the right thing. He thinks he did the right decision. That he should have not waited. That he should have offered this sacrifice. And as Saul goes out to greet Samuel, it's ironic. It's ironic. He goes out to bless Samuel. When Samuel's coming in, to curse him. Verse 11, Samuel says, what? Have you done? I imagine Samuel gives him the look that my wife and I have given our kids a hundred times. He thought you did. What have you done? And Saul starts defending himself. And look at what he says. He says, when I saw the people were scattering from me, when I saw the army deserting, when I saw that you did not come within the days appointed, and when I saw the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Along with the smell of the burning wood, we should smell the defensiveness in the air, the self-righteousness in Saul's response. Like so many of us, when we are cut in sin, he said, it's not my fault. It's not my fault I didn't wait. It's the army's fault. No, it's not my fault I didn't wait. It's your fault, Samuel. You said seven days. It took you eight. Maybe seven and a half. 
It's not my fault I didn't wait. The Philistines were at the doorstep with an army bigger than we've ever faced before. And what he basically says is, I was trying to seek the favor of God. When Saul says, I forced myself, he is using a Hebrew idiom to the effect of, this is what I had to do. This was the only choice I had. I took control of the situation. I did what needed to be done. How dare you judge me? This is him talking to the man of God. We've never talked like that before, right? I've never said or thought that when it came to disobedience to God. No, I think I've done it more often than I would like to admit. I would never have lied in that situation, but if I told the truth, it would be so disappointing. That person would look at me differently. I forced myself to. I did what I had to do. I never would have been unfaithful in that way, but my marriage was loveless. And my stress was at an all-time high, and I couldn't function in my job. So I took control. I forced myself. I did what I had to do. You don't understand. I only took that extra whatever money or, or resource because my family was in a hard place. My mortgage was getting late. It was the only thing I could do. We talked just like Saul all the time. And as we look at Saul and his excuses, what we should see is the echoes of Adam. But it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. It wasn't my fault. Saul is going the same exact path, and we see in Saul echoes of ourself. I had to. I forced myself to. It was the only way. Saul's self-righteousness is so overarching that, like I said before, he goes out to bless Samuel, not knowing that God's curse is upon him for his act of disobedience. How does Samuel respond to this justification, this self-defense? He responds with the judgment of God. He responds with the judgment of God, and it's in that that we see the evaluation of Saul the king. Verses 13 through 23, the judgment. You can read verse 13 with me. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel repeats in these two verses the judgment of God. You have disobeyed. You have not kept the Lord's command. You have not done what God told you to do. And it's interesting to me just how clear Samuel's vision is. He sees things in a way that's more black and white than most of us would be comfortable with. From Samuel's point of view, it's simple. Saul had disobeyed the word of the Lord. Now my natural inclination, I don't know if you're like me, my natural inclination is to see things from Saul's point of view. I understand where Saul is coming from. I can see why he did what he did. I, I feel like I felt with my friend who had that situation with his workplace that I could understand why he might tweak the rules a bit, but Samuel's point of view is the Lord's point of view, and we need to know that in this passage. Samuel here, the prophet, speaks for God. God never told Saul to sacrifice this thing. 
God never told Saul, before you fight a battle, make sure you seek my favor with a burnt offering. God said, if you want to seek me, wait for Samuel. Listen to the instructions and do them. God said, wait, and you didn't. It's black and white. It's right and wrong. Disobedience equals judgment. And it's sad and ironic that Saul thought through his disobedience he was seeking the favor of the Lord. Have you ever done that? That maybe through some twisted way and in my human mind, by disobedience, I can somehow be doing what would earn favor with the Lord? That's not how it works. This was not commanded of the king. In fact, he was doing a very pagan thing. Right? He thought that if he just offered the right sacrifice, then maybe the Lord would grant him victory in the upcoming battle. That he could give a tit for tat with God. What Samuel says cuts through Saul's whole defense. He says, yeah, you had all these reasons to disobey. To save your army, to inspire the people, to defeat the Philistines, whatever. You had all these reasons to disobey. Maybe today to save face, to protect the church, to not bring kind of dishonor or shame on our family or our friends. Samuel says, you had one great reason to obey God. And the reason is simple. That those who obey God are the ones who receive his favor. Those who obey God are the ones who receive his blessing and his favor. He says, God is God. He would have blessed you. He would have established your kingdom forever. But because Saul turned away from God, he has taken away the kingdom and given it to another. As I was reading commentaries on this passage, I noticed a trend of commentators over the millennium, from the very beginning of the church till now, that commentators have read this passage, and what they want to do is they want to come up with an understanding that's not really in the text about why what Saul did was so bad. They want to find out what, why it's worse than it seems, because that's what it seems like. It seems like the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. He just didn't wait. And so they say, well, he wasn't a Levite, so he wasn't supposed to touch the sacrifice. The text doesn't say he's the one who literally did the sacrifice. Oftentimes in the book of 1 Samuel, kings do offer sacrifices through the priest. So we don't know that he touched something he wasn't supposed to touch. We don't know that he, he did something that was obviously against God's law to all the people around him. What the text tells us is that the reason he is judged is he did not do what God told him to do, which was to wait for the Lord's instruction. That's it. That's the decision. That's the judgment. And if we're real for a moment, what is your reaction to that? This is the Old Testament, right? This, this isn't uh, what we're used to. You read that and you're like, well, actually, the New Testament too. And in highest sense of fire, what is your reaction to that? I think we're meant to be, to some degree, surprised by this passage. It seems like a small thing. To our ears, Saul's disobedience could hardly be described as disobedience compared to some of the things that we have grown accustomed to. Brothers and sisters, I speak to myself. What we need to hear, what we need to heed in here is the lesson of Saul's failure. The point of this story is that there is no reason good enough to disobey God. There is never a reason good enough to transgress the law of God. There is never a good enough reason 
to not do what God has told you to do. As the book of Samuel has taught us over and over again, to obey the Lord brings his blessing. To disobey brings judgment. And as Christians, I think that we sometimes lie to ourselves. And sometimes we are self-deceived, not just as Christians, but as people. We don't want to make the connection between our disobedience and our misery. We don't want to go there, even though the Bible goes there a lot. We don't want to make the connection between our sin and the consequences that follow. We don't want to admit that our dishonoring of our parents in our lives has led to this fractured relationship with them and maybe with our own kids nowadays. We don't want to admit that our failure to love and respect these people in our lives is the source of so much of the strife and the bitterness and the conflict that we complain about. We don't want to admit that our secret sins and our hypocrisy and the things that we continually do habitually, even though we know the Lord forbids them, are the reason why we don't have confidence, why we don't have peace, and why we have stress in our lives, and why we don't share the good news with others. We don't want to admit that disobedience leads to judgment. And the Bible says this over and over again from the first pages of Scripture till now. Brothers and sisters, the blessings of God are for those who fear and obey Him. I'm not talking about riches and money and material blessings, but the blessings of a right relationship with Him, of knowing that you're right with God, of being able to receive and to do His Word, the power of the Spirit. There are no good reasons to disobey the Word of God. Samuel says to Saul, and he says to those of us who are like Saul, you have done foolishly. And the word foolish in the Old Testament is not about being a dummy, though it includes that. Foolishness is used to talk about evil, godlessness, acting like an atheist no matter what you say, walking like the world no matter how you talk. This is what Samuel condemns. Stop making excuses. Maybe for some of us, stop believing your own excuses. Start obeying the word of the Lord. Matthew Henry, he's an old Puritan who wrote uh, probably the best free commentary on the whole Bible that you can get. So if you don't have it, download it, read it. Not the abridged version, get the unabridged version. Very long. He says there are five lessons to learn from this judgment of this small sin, this seemingly small sin. And I think they're just, they're so insightful and they're so great. He says, first, there is no such thing as a little sin because there is no little God. Every sin is worthy of the loss of the heavenly kingdom. Just as Saul lost his future kingdom by this decision, every sin against a perfect, holy, magnificent God is worthy of the loss of the eternal heavenly kingdom. Secondly, Matthew Henry says, disobedience to a clear command, no matter how small, is a very serious thing to God. The clearer the word of God, the more heinous the disobedience to what God has said. And so when we read in Scripture, and I'm not just talking about the Old Testament, I'm talking about the New Testament too. When we read the commands of Christ, what we are supposed to do, the way that we're supposed to live and to act and to love others as his people, the way that we're supposed to be with the church and not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some, to disobey a clear command of Scripture is a serious thing to God. Thirdly, Matthew Henry says that sometimes what seems small to others on the outside can in our hearts be a very heinous thing. That just because everyone else doesn't know, just because it looks okay and you can 
kind of gloss over and no one will call you on it in your heart to disobey the Lord, to know what is right and to choose to do what is wrong is a heinous thing in the eyes of our Creator. Fourthly, he says that God's grace to forgive then the great sins of David, the next king, the great sins of Manasseh, a terrible king who was forgiven by God in his repentance, that God's grace to forgive these people who will come after Saul because they repented, it shows just how great and just how lavish God's grace is, just how undeserved it is to us who have sinned in so many far greater ways. And finally, he writes, the fifth lesson we should get is that oftentimes in the midst of the thing that we think is forcing us to disobey, in that circumstance where you think the only thing I can do is is what I know is wrong, what God wants us to do is to wait on him. What God wants us to do is to wait on him, as Saul was supposed to wait. Samuel's judgment is swift. Because he did not obey the command of the Lord, Saul's reign would not last. We need to recognize in this text that at this point, Saul is not rejected himself yet. God doesn't reject Saul, the man, yet he doesn't say that uh, you're being kicked off of being king. That, that'll actually happen a little bit later because Saul doesn't get the lesson. But right now, he takes away the future kingdom from Saul. He gives it to another, a man after his own heart. One who will obey, one who will listen, one who will seek obedience instead of just that victory. I visited a lot of churches, like I said, during my sabbatical. And, and it was interesting. There was a lot of common things I would see. But one thing I saw is a lot of churches talking about victory. Talking about how we all need victory in our lives and, and how God wants you to have victory. And that's true. Yeah, I'm not saying God's not for you. If you're a believer and you're in Christ, God is for you. But it's his kind of victory. And I felt that I need to say from this passage something that not a lot of pastors seem to want to say anymore, that the man after God's own heart, the woman after God's own heart, is the one who desires obedience to God far more than just a victory in the battle we see. That even if this looks like it's not going to lead to victory, obedience is what the Lord requires of his people. Obedience is what he blesses. As Saul, as Samuel will say in a few chapters, to obey is better than sacrifice. Look at verse 15. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Samuel leaves the scene. He doesn't offer the peace offering. He doesn't give the instructions. He just says the judgment and he leaves. And Saul takes what men he can to meet up with Benjamin and the rest of the standing army. But look at the number. It's only 600 men. He gathered 600 more men to fight this battle. And the rest of the verses, if I can sum them up for us, they speak to the fallout of Saul's decision. Just what disobedience got him. Okay, there's this, this picture, and it talks about kind of a lot of the details about why the Israelites didn't have a lot of um, weapons, because they didn't have blacksmiths who had the skills necessary to create these uh, iron weapons. But it's really a picture of bleakness. Okay, the army is, is tiny. It's meager. The people are unarmed. They're unprepared. They're vulnerable. They have no swords. They have no spears. But most importantly, now they have no word of God. The prophet has departed. He's not instructing them anymore. And the image is poetic as Samuel the prophet and Saul the king part ways. 
Saul has traded the word of God to 600 more men. He has traded the leading of God for a temporary reign that will end very soon. He has given up the Lord of hosts for a few hundred farmers. Brothers and sisters, this message is for us. To obey is better than sacrifice. The blessing of the Lord is better than that victory you're seeking. As Samuel will say again in a few chapters, as we'll remember in a few weeks, to obey is better than sacrifice. This is what the Lord desires. I think some of us, uh, we have a tendency to sacrifice all sorts of things to cover up disobedience. I've done it in my own life. Right? To, to, to cover up my disobedience with maybe a little bit of extra help around the house, or a little bit extra giving in the offering, or a little bit extra whatever is easy for me to give, instead of being obedient to what I know the Word of God requires. God wants more than your time card on Sunday. He doesn't need our singing voices. He doesn't need your thanks after you do something big and important. Yes, those things are all great, but what he wants is men and women after his own heart. Men and women who desire to obey, no matter the cost, no matter the situation. The bad news is that Saul, the king of Israel, the first king, chose to disobey the Lord. But there's good news for us. And we need to go here if we're going to understand this passage rightly. We need to go to the gospel. This passage is a warning, but it's also a reminder that for people like us, people who know that we have often failed and disobeyed, there is a better king than Saul. God planned a better king than Saul. And it's not just David. Right? It's Jesus. In this passage, Israel has nowhere to put their hope. But as Samuel has told them time and time again, the only place they're supposed to put their hope is in God himself. In light of Saul's failure, we need to see God's success in Jesus Christ. Saul's disobedience leads to God's choice of a new king, King David, who through his line of kings, down the line, there would come the true, perfect, chosen king who would never disobey, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the king that Saul never could be. He was the perfect king. He lived the perfect life that Saul could not live and that none of us could live. Jesus was a king who fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He is a king who obeyed everything the Father said. And where Saul was disobedient, Jesus, the Bible says, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A death in which he poured the penalty we deserve for all of our disobedience. The Bible says that in his resurrection, Jesus was the king who defeated the greatest enemies of sin and death once and for all, by himself. And because of Jesus and this gospel, we as Christians who trust in him are transformed. This is the good news of this passage. Yes, we are often like Saul. But because of Jesus, we don't need to justify our sin before others. Because in Jesus, we have the justification before God that we need. In Jesus, we have the only true motivation for God's people be obedient. What should we learn from Saul? To obey God? But what happens when we fail like Saul? When we realize that we are like him in more ways than we would like to admit. When disobedience seems to make sense to us in our earthly circumstances, what we need to learn is to remember 
King Jesus, the one who bore our disobedience on his body, who poured out his blood for our transgression, who lives to intercede for us. And when we focus our eyes on him, may we turn in faith and repentance and worship and obedience. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask that the reminder of our need for Christ, our perfect, obedient, sacrificial, loving King, would give us, by your Spirit, the motivation and the power to obey even when it doesn't make sense. Now, if there are sins that any of us are holding on to right now, and, and I know that that is most likely the case, Lord, if there are sins that we are holding on to and we are habitually going to and ways in which we are justifying ourselves before you, I pray that right now, Lord, you would, you would sanctify us through your word. You would help us to put away those excuses and those things, to remember Christ, and to turn wholly and fully in repentance to him. And so right now as a church, we're going to give you a few moments to pray in response to the word of God. Just a few moments to pray quietly for yourselves to turn to Christ. And then in just a few moments, the worship team will lead us in singing a response to our Savior.